Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with stars, creators, and industry leaders on Broadway, off-Broadway, around the country, and around the world. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'm talking to Stephanie Ibarra, a longtime arts leader with a resume that includes the Playwrights Realm, Dallas Theater Center, and the Public Theater. Ibarra was named Artistic Director at Baltimore Center Stage in 2018 and she was in the midst of the first full season she'd programmed at the theater when the coronavirus pandemic shut down center stage alongside all the other theaters around the country. Now, with nonprofit theaters and commercial producers alike grappling with their own systemic racism and working to enact the changes that will combat it, Ibarra already has knowledge and experience that many in the theater industry are hungry for. In the wake of the 2016 election, she and a small handful of arts professionals founded the Artists' Anti-Racist Coalition, and she came to her role at Center Stage with anti-racism in mind. Ibarra is in the virtual studio with me to tell us what it means, artistically and structurally, for a long-standing theater to embrace anti-racism and make real change. Hi, Stephanie. Thanks for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about your background in the theater and what brought you to where you are today? Well, the older I get, the longer that story gets. <laughs> So I'll try to be brief. I um, I started in the theater a gajillion years ago, a little over two decades, as an actor, and very quickly realized that if I wanted to affect change in my community, um, I personally was not going to be most effective as an actor. I decided to, I wanted to be the boss. So I sort of um, made my way through from Dallas um, up to the East Coast and through various parts of New England um, by way of the Yale School of Drama into New York and um, and found myself working as an artistic producer um, off-Broadway and for about a decade yeah. and ultimately- at the, at the public theater. We should at the public, yeah, most recently right. at the public theater. Right. And um, I learned so much being there um, in, in New York for, for all those years and in, in many ways still think of it as home. Um, but when Baltimore Center Stage called and said they were looking for a new artistic director to succeed my dear friend and colleague Kwame Kwe Arma, I could not 
resist. And so I've been here in Baltimore for a little over a year and a half as the artistic director at Baltimore Center Stage. Right. And you'd worked with Kwame uh, before, right? He was involved in the public works and things like that. Right. And actually, he and I met um, before he did public works. We met a thousand years ago at the public um, when I was line producing Dominique Mariso's um, production of uh, Detroit 67, which Kwame was directing. And and so that's where we first met. And then he worked on the mobile unit um, with me and so on and so forth. Yeah, and the mobile unit, just for people who don't know, that's um, that's taking productions, uh, Shakespeare productions, to all five boroughs. It's basically, I, I kind of think of it as Shakespeare in the park, except traveling. Is that right? Yeah, I I think of it as, um, yeah, the community touring arm of the public theater, Shakespeare in the park, in all five boroughs, also known as really close to the way Shakespeare was performed when mm. Shakespeare was doing his his own work. Right. Right. according to all of my Shakespeare scholar friends. So it's a, it was a pretty amazing experience. Right. And is there a job or an experience in particular in your career that really influences the way you think about anti-racism in the theater? 100% my time mm-hmm. as the program director of the mobile unit at okay. the public theater. Yeah. So the years that I spent at, um, at the public were among the most formative of my career. And a big part of that was that my my time producing the mobile unit and actually um, producing work for a, uh, a community context and producing work that was designed to perform be performed in prisons and homeless shelters and libraries and um, and sort of in community centers intersected beautifully with my um, my own journey along the uh, path of anti-racism. So I was I was getting to see up close the um, effects of um, systemic racism, white supremacy, and oppression, systemic oppression in our society, um, and the disproportionate impact it has on um, communities of color, um, and the devastating impact it has on communities of color. And I was seeing that right um, at the same time when I was devising and, and, and constructing um, producing practices for the mobile unit to align with the set of values that we were that we were um, aspiring to. Yeah. Can you uh, give us a concrete example or two of some of the stuff you did and how that was influenced by the things you saw as you were working? Sure. One of the more there, there are so many ways that we as as theater consumers and theater makers are just completely unknowingly indoctrin- indoctrinated into a set of behaviors or beliefs and practices. And, and one of the more insidious ways that, um, that, that white supremacy specifically shows up in um, our theater practices is this idea of sit quietly politely, I'm doing air quotes now, whatever, and um, in the dark and mind your manners while, you know, the, the uh, work of art is being performed before you and do not disturb it. And there's a, there's a hierarchy built into that behavior system. And at 
when I was working on the mobile unit, um, which in the model is inspired by um, a company called 10,000 Things in Minneapolis. And it, it involves um, putting the actors um, and, the, and the playing space in a 14 by 14 foot sort of square in the center of the room, putting the audience on all four sides, using the, whatever lights are over our head um, and no amplified sound. So by virtue of simply being all under the same light and not distinguishing like by darkness, who is in, sitting in darkness and who is sitting in a pool of light, the hierarchy began to, to uh, dissolve and disintegrate. And the, um, the kind of, of behavior that, that, that we saw from our audiences, the vocalization um, within the audience members, the community building that was being um, facilitated during the performance was proof positive that um, the, our physical spaces and the physical experience of going to the theater is reinforces for better and for worse some really um, some some traditions we should maybe think about doing away with. Like the proscenium, it sounds like is one of the one of the. Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when it, we think about who is um, who, our audiences are you know, are made up of primarily, whether you're talking mm -hmm. about regional theater or Broadway, we all know it's a, ve it's a very well-known fact that they are predominantly white and that they come from a particular socioeconomic status. And when sitting in the mobile unit audiences where we were um, self-selecting into communities of color um, throughout New York, there was a different kind of, of tacit, um, uh, in, uh, the, the tacit rules of engagement that we have in a Broadway house did yes. not apply. Right. And so that is actually like one of the more nuanced um, examples of how uh, of, of just one way anti-racism work can show up inside of, of our theater productions is simply, you know, allowing audiences to come with their, as their whole selves into an, a, a theatrical experience and to not police or regulate or legislate how mm. they experience that performance and to, and to stop dictating what is the correct way to sit and enjoy theater. Yeah. And it sounds like from what I know of your background at around this time is when you started thinking about, and you're one of the co-founders of an organization called the Artists Anti-Racism Coalition. And so this is, it sounds like that fed into the work that you did that led to that. Can you tell us a little about that? Deeply, yeah, this is deeply ingrained in in, um, in my work at the public. Yeah, that um, that particular um, organization, or it's more of a collective than anything else, um, began like so many things right after the twenty sixteen presidential election. Mm, right, and um, my friends and I um, took a, a training from the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond called Undoing Racism and Community Organizing. Right. And um, immediately, you know, we were introduced to a set of practices and principles um, that many other people have known about for years, but were, was new to me and us. And it was a little like, um, I liken it to uh, the movie The Matrix, um, where if you once you unplug from the Matrix and you look around and you realize what the world is actually 
how the world is actually operating. And you see all of these systems that are that are operating on all of us and within our beloved um, spaces like our theater institutions. Mm-hmm. And so it's really hard to unsee. It's really, mm-hmm. really hard to unknow and unsee. And so once I had been through that training, um, it didn't take long for me to look around um, for us to look around and we could see the systemic racism, the unintended and accidental and unwitting participation in systemic racism literally everywhere. Right. So Roberta Pereira and Jacob Padron and David Roberts and I, um, we all went to graduate school together as so dear friends and, and all working in New York theater in some capacity. And we started organizing. We started organizing and calling our colleagues in, um, who worked in other uh, areas of the off-Broadway community. And we, we took the training again with our off-Broadway mm-hmm. colleagues. And, and from there, really started to um, imagine collectively with our friends and with our colleagues um, how we could start to dismantle this stuff within the off-Broadway community. And that work continues today. And I, you know, I no longer live in New York, but I'm still on those emails. And that's a, that's a list now, dozens and dozens of people big, and they are still to this very day, they're, they're talking amongst themselves about how to continue the work. And can you give us an example of how you do that or how you first started that out? What were some of the projects or initiatives that uh, the coalition first kind of took on when it launched? It began, you know, the, this particular manifestation of the, of organizing looks like, um, yeah, it's, it began a lot with conversation and just talking to each other about where we were seeing um, racist systems or practices or processes in our individual organizations. So at first it really did look a lot like, Hey, um, I think I found, I think I found a racism moment and, you know, and I think it's in this practice in this set of practices or, it, or I I've, I've, I think I see a, a white supremacy moment in this set of beliefs mm. and, um, and whether we are talking to, you know, we're talking across agents and artistic directors and um, and directors and funders in that group. And so there, there wasn't initially one initiative that we were all working on, but instead we were working collectively to, um, to better understand all of the places that we were seeing this pop up. And the, and the, the, the idea or the act of, of saying, I found a spot. Does anybody else see this? And everybody's saying, ah, yes. Then we could start to think about and talk about ways that we might combat it. And, and I'm, I'm being a little vague here because the, what's running through my mind right now are just like it actually dozens and dozens of examples one of the earliest projects that my colleagues and I embarked on was actually looking at the sort of 10, 10 major off-Broadway theaters in New York City mm-hmm. and looking at 10 seasons of those 10 major theaters and, um, and identifying based on our knowledge of the field, looking at directors and writers um, for 10 seasons and 
how many white folks were in those positions, how many people of color were in those positions, where those folks were being produced, which correlates to pay. Um, and so we, we, we started counting. That was one major initiative when we started the Artist Anti-Racism um, Coalition. So we started counting and we started making graphs and we started making infographics. And then we started having conversations with um, some of our colleagues uh, who were artistic directors and uh, artistic leaders inside of the off-Broadway community to let them know what we'd found. Which was, I imagine these were quite telling, these figures. Yes. There was, what was striking was, um, none of it is malicious. None of it is, I gotta believe that, that none of it is intentional, but what was really striking was the, the narrative that organizations had about themselves and what the, the, their hiring practices or curatorial practices actually revealed. Mm. Right. So there's one um, off-Broadway um, theater, uh, a, a colleague of ours who said, you know, we we we're very diverse. We have a, a great diversity of writers and directors in our history. And then they proceeded to name, you know, we produced Terrell McCraney and we produced Brandon, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. So, yeah, we're we've been supporting, you know, artists of color for a while. And then when we look back at those 10 seasons, it was 90% of the content, the like the writers and the directors, 90% were white. And that was, they, that, they just, it didn't click. And so once they saw the actual, you know, numbers and the, the percentages, the response was, oh God, I had no idea. I, I, well, we had a completely different narrative um, for about ourselves. Right. I'll have more with Stephanie right after the break. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And now here's more with the artistic director of Baltimore Center Stage, Stephanie Ibarra. And then at the same time, as we mentioned, you're coming into an organization. You're coming in as a new leader in an organization. Um, tell us a little bit about how all this stuff you were thinking about influenced the ways you looked at what Baltimore Center Stage was doing in terms of where it was succeeding and where maybe some growth needed to happen. I really appreciate that question. Um, I feel like of there's a whole slew of us who have who have just stepped into artistic director positions in the last 24 months. Right. Yeah. And I am one of the uh, luckiest, I think, in that my predecessor, um, like I said, Kwame, Kwame, along with my friend Hannah Sharif, who is now the artistic director at um, St. Louis Rep. Mm. 
they had been doing a lot of this work for a long time at Baltimore Center Stage. So I came in, I feel like, um, with a different foundation underneath me than some of my colleagues. And, An institutional foundation, you mean? Yes, correct. Yeah, okay. um, and and so one of the first places I look um, when it comes to anti-racism, just like where um, systemic inequities might be operating. Usually, if you look at a budget, you will find inequities. Like you, and and so as the artistic director, one of my major responsibilities, right, is to produce produce the plays and put together the production budgets. Um, I am I am the primary driver of where dollars get spent when it comes. Mm-hmm. To our uh, productions. And so when I looked at the production budget, that was the first place I looked. That's just what I'm uh, accustomed to doing. And sure enough, um, I found, um, uh, you know, unwitting, unintentional inequities. And in a, in a practice that is very pervasive and well-worn in our industry, and that is the tiered... Um, the tiered fee system in the different mm-hmm. sized houses in our theaters. So right. at Baltimore Center Stage, we have um, a big theater and an even bigger theater. And um, those spaces are governed by different pay, you know, fee, fee structures um, with the unions. But in the case of Baltimore Center Stage, you know, we don't charge different ticket prices for those mm-hmm. houses. Um, and so many... I think theaters do produce second stages or off center, you know, whatever you want to underground name, the name, the sort of um, second space. But what happens is the artists get paid less. The idea being that the theater cannot earn as much money in those smaller spaces. But when you look at who is being produced, where, then you start to see economic inequality and a wage gap starts to emerge. And that was um, operating a little bit at Baltimore Center Stage. So the actors were being paid the same in both spaces, which is fantastic. It's the same work. Yeah. And there was, there was discrepancy, though, in the designer and director fees, which, again, is standard practice in our theaters. Um, it's not wrong, but it does... The unintended negative consequence is that it perpetuates some um, economic um, disparities that none of us want to see. So, um, and it was an easy, it's a relatively easy fix and we don't get to fix it all in one um, fiscal year, but my executive director and I have charted a path toward parity. Was that hard to get? For instance, the board on board with, or other people in the organization. How much, how much buy? How hard was the buy-in to to uh, get from your team? Not hard at all, hmm. because it is. Um, while all of us are dealing with uh, resource constraints, we all have priorities. We all. We understand the language of priorities and you fund your priorities first. So my in in partnership with my executive director, in close collaboration with our director of artistic producing and uh, director of production, we created a set of uh, production budgets and parameters that prioritized um, 
uh, accelerating um, increased fees for our designers and directors. And we did that inside of an overall reduction in cost for our productions. So like everybody else, we had to like pinch pennies and what have you. But because we funded, um, we put stakes in the ground first around closing these gaps mm-hmm. and then built the production budgets accordingly. It was not a hard conversation. Mm-hmm. And we were very upfront with our artists too about what we were doing. Every design team that gathered, I said, you know, here's your production budget. You may be tempted to say, where's the rest of it? And I will tell you very explicitly, here is the thing that I'm after over the next few seasons. Mm-hmm. So when you have, when you were tempted to say, where is the rest of it? Remember that I have a bigger goal that is operating here. And every single one of those artists said, yes, I support this. and Let's go. Mm. And then how did your anti-racism and equity thinking factor into your creative decisions in terms of the shows you programmed and the artists you programmed? Well, you need only look at the first season that I created. Mm-hmm to see how it how it shows up i which was um, the 2019 2020 abbreviated 2019 2020 season right correct right we actually didn't get to finish it but um it is a season written and directed by the majority um uh, artists of color um and so again you know looking at the historic inequities of the way writers and directors um, who are white have have disproportionately shown up in our seasons. One of the first, um, I don't, it wasn't, to say it was a conscious decision is truthful, but also it is second nature to me. It is not hard Hmm. to come up with, uh, you know, six plays written by six six outstanding plays written by people of color and directed by people of color. Um, so that was the the biggest expression, I think, of my own values. And that has that did not begin with Baltimore Center Stage. If you look at my hiring practices and curatorial practices throughout my career, that is where I have uh, that's where I've been living. Mm-hmm. And did your thinking also influence what the theater was doing on sort of a marketing community outreach side? Sure. I, I again, really feel really, really fortunate to uh, be surrounded by a team at Baltimore Center Stage that is deeply invested in um, the the sort of ongoing uh, growth of the of, of our own understanding um, around anti-racism and how it shows up in our work. And one of the ways that we do that is by looking at our marketing language, at the ways we talk to and the ways we talk about communities of color. And Baltimore is um, a city that is majority black and our audiences at Baltimore Center Stage are incredibly diverse and yet still um, are a majority white. So we are, are wrestling with that um, disconnect and we are looking for ever evolving our language and ever evolving our understanding of how we can do a better job of ensuring that um, 
that black folks and indigenous folks and other communities of color um, know that we're here and know that we, we, we really want to welcome all of those communities into our building mm-hmm. when it's safe to do that again. You mentioned uh, the tiered fee structure that was one of the things that you are working toward changing. What is another thing that you that is on your list of things to tackle or things that you hope to tackle in the future? I'm hoping to tackle this question of shared power and shared leadership. Mm. It is much on my mind um, as I think about um, one of the ways that um, systems of oppression work is consolidating power, right? right? And the hierarchy that our organizations are all <laughs> built on mm-hmm. is, is uh, working against our better angels. Um, right. And so I, I don't have good solutions yet. Um, but, you know, it's like the first step is admitting you have a problem. And I have a problem with consolidating power solely around. You are, in fact, an artistic director, right? That is that. It, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, that's interesting. That was going to be one of my next questions for you is how you start to think about, because so much of anti-racism work is about kind of the uh, the dis- dispersal of power or kind of the dis- decentering of power structures, right? And uh, so many theater companies, either whether nonprofit or even commercial, they're all sort of built around a hierarchy of some sort. And that's sort of, uh, they, it seems like there is a tension there that is going to be hard for a lot of people to solve. For sure. But I think, um, at least in, in my case, I am surrounded by on the, my artistic team alone, I am surrounded by a group of people um, who will not let me forget that one of the that this is one of the central issues that we have to mm. we have to resolve, um, and and that we don't you know one of the things that makes me more hopeful about um, success in the short and long term is that we don't have to get it right on the first try. Right. That you know my team and I will talk amongst ourselves we have a shared vocabulary and understanding of these practices and and what we're aiming for and we get to try a thing and learn from it and then try it again or try another thing and then learn from it and and we are um, one of our practices is iterating and learning and evolving so I have hope that we'll figure it out yeah where in your mind, where are some of the biggest blind spots in the industry right here, right now, in terms of how people are thinking about systemic racism in the theater overall? I really appreciate that question. I think that often it is easiest to it is easy to look at who is on stage, and um, or or even uh, who is you know, uh, constituting the board or the senior leadership. And those things are incredibly important. However, I think one of the major blind spots that we've, um, that we're operating with is that, that a, a culture that is, um, that is reinforcing white supremacy is not just about the white folks, the number of white folks on any given staff, that 
uh, or any given board or in any given audience, that 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 culture of of privileging and prioritizing whiteness and celebrating whiteness, that is a thing that is done by every single one of us, myself included. Um, we are steeped in it. We have been fed a steady diet of of that mentality. Um, if you were born in this country, then you grew up on a steady diet of white supremacy. It's everywhere. So the we should be dismantling the power structures. We should be diversifying our um, our leadership, and we can't. It cannot be just about that. It has to be about a greater and more sophisticated understanding about the way every single one of us is complicit in upholding these systems. Yeah. Has you've been thinking about this? For a long time now, but has the current moment influenced the way uh, the way you think about these things and your approach to these things? Yeah, hmm. I, um, for starters, this current moment—it's like overnight, literally overnight. Hmm. Anti-racism was—it was like in the zeitgeist in a way that it hasn't been before. Right. So I. I remember this was before I got to Baltimore Center Stage, but back when I was organizing in New York, I had a, a conversation, true story, I had a conversation with a board member at a major off-Broadway theater, not my own. It was, you know, this is when we were doing our let, let us show you your practices um, and your history. And when and when I said anti-racism, the board member responded with Anti just sounds so negative. Anti-racism. It's just so negative. And I'm not sure what it means, you know? And so that's that's where we were not even five years ago. Mm. And now I feel like there is a greater, a much greater awareness about what that phrase means and um and who and who needs to be paying attention when somebody else says it. Um <laughs> so it has it has been liberating um, to be able to say anti-racism, anti-oppression and white supremacy and not have to then brace myself for the um, sometimes the backlash that comes with saying those words and not to I, it's been liberating not to have to explain it. So mm -hmm. what that has allowed me to do um, is uh, go back to some deep and much needed self-reflection um, uh, on how to advance my own learning again and advance my own understanding of my own biases and um, and how I contribute to and am complicit in um, anti-blackness and where that shows up for me and how decolonization um, uh, needs to be showing up more in my vocabulary and in my in my analysis. So it's it's sort of, helped this moment is pushing me to do uh, deeper work and move forward in my own um, for myself individually and as an artistic leader. Yeah. Are there other people or organizations doing this kind of work in the theater who you look to in terms of making great strides and in ways that you appreciate? 
Yeah. In terms of folks who are helping to educate us all in the field, I think Carmen Morgan and folks at Art Equity are doing a beautiful job and have been doing this work for a long time. Um, I also want to lift up um, Nicole Brewer, who is- I talked to her on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Nicole also been doing this work for a hot minute and is doing excellent work. And then, you know, I feel um, there, are, there are tons of individual artists who are implementing this practice um, in their own art making. Oh, and I should say um, uh, People Mover, which is a Brooklyn-based um, consultancy, um, a Black-led um, Brooklyn-based creative consultant organization um, helmed by Jeffrey Jackson Scott. And Jeffrey and his team um, are doing incredible work in the integration of anti-racist principles in audience development, in creative producing, and in um, and in facilitation. So Google them. They're great. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Um, but yeah, I think that there are happily... There are pockets of artists all over the country, and there are theaters like Cal Shakes um, and mm-hmm. Eric Ting over there at Cal Shakes and OSF with Nataki Garrett, you know, Maria Goyanis at Woolly Mammoth. Like there, it's, it's, a, it's a whole movement. Right. And are there, uh, you know, a lot of this, a, a lot of things that came out of this moment, at least initially, were you know reading lists for people who were eager to sort of educate themselves. As you mentioned, are there works like that, books or whatever, um, that that have helped you and that you might point other people to? Sure, I started before before uh, Ibram Kendi wrote his books first stamped um, from the Mm. beginning and then how to be an anti-racist. I was reading um, Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown, um, which is an excellent resource in understanding um, not just uh, systems of oppression and and racism, but also the antidote to those things in in organizing and movement building. Mm. Um, The podcast um, Seeing White, which I believe was uh, out of Duke, I think. I think that's right. Yeah. Was really helpful as well. But, but really, um, I think Ibram Kendi's work has been seminal. And, yeah. and going through Stamped from the beginning and really understanding the, the, the actual laws beyond yeah. theater, the actual laws and history of this country was a uh, really sobering um, <laughs> journey. Um, and then, of course, you everybody should be reading how to be an anti-racist or me and white supremacy um right. supremacy and me which i haven't read yet yeah me and white supremacy yeah 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 and for people in the industry right now who are trying to figure out what to do next what's your advice to them start somewhere mm. start anywhere google anti-racism go down whatever rabbit holes you need to go down and then um, do not be um, intimidated by the enormity of the task because it is enormous and it will not be done in our lifetime and it will take literally every single one of us doing the work. But if you start somewhere and put one foot in front of the other and you keep putting one foot in front of the other, then eventually you have... A, a 
sort of system of uh, practices and uh, a way to articulate your values and what you see that I think um, emerges, right, from constant practice. Um, so my advice is you got to start somewhere. It's okay to start small. In fact, it's preferable to start small. Um, we all need to be starting small with ourselves. And from there, we build out. Yeah. Great. Thank you. It's really nice talking to you. Thanks, Stephanie. I appreciate Thank your time. You. Thank you. That was Stephanie Ibarra, the Artistic Director at Baltimore Center Stage, and one of the co-founders of the Artists Anti-Racism Coalition. If you like what you're hearing on this and other episodes of StageCraft, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe and find past episodes there and on all the other pod places, including Spotify and on the Broadway Podcast Network, which is a great place to find more theater for your ears. I'll be back soon with another new episode. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs>